From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. COVID vaccinations are rolling out, although slowly, across the nation, but there's limited information about what to do with patients on immunosuppressive medications like methotrexate. Do you pause medication for a few weeks after the COVID vaccine in the hope that that boosts the immune response? And are there flare risks associated with doing that? That's the topic of the cover story for our latest edition of the Rheumatology Republic, edited by Dr. Owen Lim, Dr. David Liu, and Karina Bray. Karina and Felicity are with me today. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Frankie. Hi. So, Felicity, you wrote this story on COVID vaccination and methotrexate. Was this a curly one? Well, yeah, we only ever put curly ones on the front page. Uh, you got to have something to draw people in. Um, yeah, it was tough because there's not a great deal of data around this question of what to do if a patient is taking an immunosuppressant drug and is about to get a COVID shot. And the question is, do you withhold methotrexate for one week or two weeks? Do you keep them on it and then risk a lower immune response? And and there's not a lot of data around this topic. Uh, As you can imagine, it's only just starting to drop now. Um, So it's almost like daily updates on this question of what you should do. Uh, So the latest is that there was a paper in the Annals of Rheumatic Disease on the 25th of May, which tracked 82 patients in New York and Germany who had psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, And this group received the Pfizer's mRNA COVID vaccine. I'm guessing all those patients were also on methotrexate? Of those, only 45 were taking methotrexate, but uh, most of the rest were on TNF inhibitors. So the study found that only about 60% of patients with rheumatic disease who were taking methotrexate had an adequate antibody response following COVID vaccination, whereas in the rest of the community, so the healthy group, had about a 90% response. That basically means that people who are on methotrexate, who have rheumatic disease, who get the COVID vaccine, when they're not, they haven't stopped methotrexate, are having a lower response, which means they might not be protected. They also looked at the T-cell response and it wasn't great after COVID vaccination in that group. So what does that mean in terms of stopping methotrexate before vaccination or whether you should withhold it after vaccination? Yeah. We spoke to Dr Samuel Whittle, who's a senior consultant rheumatologist at Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Adelaide, and he told us the current Australian guidelines are less prescriptive than the American guidelines, uh, saying that one or two doses of methotrexate can be withheld after COVID vaccination if it's right for the individual patient. And is there any word that they'll be changing that guideline? He said it was unlikely that the Australian Living Guideline recommendation on COVID vaccination would be updated based on just this one study because there are other studies showing different results. Uh, He said that we don't know that withholding methotrexate improves the immunogenicity of the vaccine because this has been extrapolated from data on the flu vaccine. As for the study which showed greater immunogenicity when methotrexate is withheld following vaccination, he said we don't know whether this actually translates into improved protection from COVID. He also said that if we have a blanket recommendation to withhold methotrexate, there'll be a proportion of people who would have a flare. So there just isn't enough data to justify making a call for a one approach for all. So it should be an individual choice based on patient circumstances. So Felicity, I'll ask you this one because you wrote this story. When that researcher says that it could actually translate to an improved protection from COVID, what's that about? Yeah, so the interesting thing here is that they've done studies showing that if the patient's on methotrexate and they get the COVID vaccine, 
then they have a reduced antibody response, which means they might not be protected against COVID. But they haven't done the reverse. So if you stop methotrexate and you get the COVID vaccine, does that mean you have a better response and then you are protected? No one's done that study. So -hmm. he's just pointing out that there are still holes in our knowledge. And so even if you go go ahead and, and stop methotrexate, doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a a better outcome. It might be, but we just don't have that data yet. So the question then is, it comes down to the individual patient. If they're going to get a flare because you've stopped their medication and they have a very severe disease, then maybe it's not good for that particular patient. So that's why the Australian guidelines really say, think about each individual circumstance um, instead of kind of having a blanket recommendation for everyone. And Karina, we know that there's new papers coming out every single week. I mean, even I did a story recently on preprints and how much information is coming out. So what's actually happening in in this area with assessing what evidence is out there? What we really need is a living systematic review that updates regularly as the data changes. As you say, there's new stuff coming out all the time. So Dr Whittle is currently working on a Cochrane Living Systematic Review with authors from Australia and Canada, which will aim to synthesise the data on COVID vaccination in patients with rheumatic disease on an ongoing basis. So turning our attention to conferences, which even coming out of my mouth seems like a foreign concept. I haven't been to a real life conference in over a year, but you both recently attended the Australian Rheumatology Conference in May. It was both virtual and in real life as well. And you managed to get in front of a really interesting speaker at the dinner, I believe, who was the sole Australian member from the World Health Organization team that traveled to Wuhan in China earlier this year to investigate the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, Professor Dominic Dwyer. Karina, you heard this investigator give the talk. What was that like? Oh, it was amazing. To hear it from the horse's mouth was just fantastic. So Professor Dwyer is a microbiologist and infectious diseases expert with New South Wales Health Pathology. He was fairly convinced that the Hunan seafood market played a leading role in getting the pandemic started, even though the smoking gun, so the exact origin of the infection, is yet to be found. He said, you could not script a better place to have an outbreak of a disease than the Wuhan wet markets. So when the WHO teams of international investigators visited the Wuhan wet markets, which have now been shut down, they saw a venue that put humans and animals in very close proximity. So in the past, different animal species have been housed in adjacent cages and human sleeping quarters were close by. The market was cramped with poor ventilation and drainage. Records show that there were poultry rabbits, ferret badgers, giant salamanders, two kinds of crocodiles, snakes traded at markets, and the markets were getting around 10,000 people visiting every day. So the markets were tested extensively by the Chinese, including thousands of samples from doors, bins, toilets, stalls, stray cats and mice, and samples from 188 animals across 18 species that were sold at the markets. Everything tested negative for SARS-CoV-2, but not everything sold at the market was tested and contact tracing pinpointed the wet markets as the source of the COVID-19 cluster in the local population. So what do we know about those early stages of transmission and the links that got us between the wet market and then the mass outbreak in Wuhan? So the first case of COVID-19 was diagnosed in December 2019 and by January 2020, 
two-thirds of the 41 patients with COVID-19 had been exposed to the seafood market. Of the COVID-19 cases diagnosed in the very early stages of the pandemic, some but not all had been exposed to the wet market. Whole genome sequencing of the SARS-CoV-2 circulating in December 2019 suggested that the virus was linked to the Wuhan wet markets, but there are other viral sequences as well. It's likely that the virus was circulating in the human population of Wuhan as early as November. This is what Professor Dwyer said. That brings us to the big question, where did the virus come from? So that's pretty uncertain. And so it was really interesting to hear Professor Dwyer speak about their investigation. But as you can see, there's a few gaps missing. We still don't know exactly where it came from. We haven't got a smoking gun yet. It could be, and this is what he said, that the virus jumped from wildlife, specifically bats, to an intermediate tree species and then was brought to the wet markets where it then started to circulate. WHO investigated a team of 34 scientists hasn't ruled out frozen or refrigerated food as a source of transmission either. So one theory was that the virus emerged elsewhere in farming, processing, transporting, refrigerating or frozen food. And this was transferred to the Wuhan market through the um, cold chain of products. But none of these were tested for the virus, so that leaves that as an open potential source. Bats remain a likely source of COVID-19, according to Professor Dwyer. So he said that bats make up 20% of mammalian species and around 10% of bats carry coronaviruses and some strains are similar to SARS-CoV-2, except they haven't actually found a bat that has SARS-CoV-2 in it yet. I'm I'm more amazed that bats make up almost one in five of all mammals. I know, it's kind of crazy. (laughs) He said that if they do find a bat that carries SARS-CoV-2, it might not even be in China because these bats are distributed across the world. So they're found in China and Indonesia, but also across Europe as well. So last year when I was talking to some experts who study zoonotic diseases, they were saying that, you know, all of those risks were really significant, both in the wet market and also possibly on the farms before people got to the wet market. And there may have even been links that were missing where it was transmitted between animal, human, animal, human quite a few times and then finally got into the city. And that could have happened in some far-fetched rural place. But it doesn't stack up with this massive theory that's circulating about that it's a lab leak. Uh, And that's been getting a lot of traction. What what is that about? So Professor Dwyer didn't actually address the lab leak theory, which uh, was the first thing that we got from one of the editors here at the Medical Republic when we came back. They said, well, what did he say about the lab leak theory? Um, All he said was that the team of investigators went to the Institute of Virology in Wuhan and had a tour. Um, (laughs) And that's it. So we didn't really get dig into whether or not there was an accident in the lab. We know that the lab there was studying coronaviruses. Um, But what he did say was that it was unlikely that SARS-CoV-2 had been intentionally created as a bioweapon because, and his argument was that it's a pretty bad bioweapon because it doesn't target people in the range of, uh, you know, 20 to 40 years old who would be conscripted to the military. It doesn't even have an effect on lots of people. So he just said it it was pretty useless bioweapon was his comment. Not to mention that it brought the Chinese economy to its knees first. Yes. So I've always found it hard to believe that any nation would create a bioweapon that destroys their own economy primary although some would argue that now they've recovered quite well so 
Not think, to add to conspiracy. Yeah, I think the lab leak theory has been covered by pretty much every newspaper on the planet. And I know one of our reporters, Ruby Prosser-Scully, is just about to drop her take on it. So <laughs> definitely check that one out. What about the way that China handled the outbreak? Yeah, Professor Dwyer did have some interesting comments about this. So one example of this was that the Chinese CDC waited about a week to publicly release the full genome sequence for COVID-19. He said that normally genome sequences were published online immediately so that tests can be quickly developed. Uh, in fact, it was an evolutionary virologist at the University of Sydney, Professor Edward Holmes, who published with his Chinese colleagues the full SARS-CoV-2 genome on the 10th of January 2020. So according to a BBC report, he was in possession of the full genome sequence for precisely 52 minutes before he posted it online. And that delay was due to him phoning his colleague, uh, Professor Yong Zhenzhang at the Chinese CDC to ask for permission to publish. That he had to think about it. There was some pressure not to release too much information about the outbreak, but he called back a minute later and said, yeah, okay, let's do it. Uh, the WHO investigators spoke to Chinese journalists to see what, if any, kind of investigative journalism was done around the time of the initial outbreaks. And journos said, oh, we reported data based on what the government said. Well, thank you so much for firstly going to a real life conference, enjoying it so much, hearing from such a great speaker, but then also being able to come back to the office and share it with me. It's fascinating. Thank you, Karina and Felicity. Thanks, Frankie. Thanks, Frankie. Before we go, don't forget that you can follow or subscribe to The Tea Room right now by searching for the show on the podcast player of your choice.